mean, most of our statements on the Fed account are transformed into robust uh, councils um, in the history of the church. And that is on the back side of the first page that is given to you. And this is what the Council of Trent says. The Catholic Church, instructed by the Holy Spirit and in accordance with the sacred scripture and the intermission of the fathers. So instructed by the Holy Spirit in accord with the sacred scriptures and in the ancient tradition of the fathers. So that is, it has been believed in, in the scriptures, has believed in the life, has been believed in the life of the church, and has been instructed by the Holy Spirit, has taught in the holy councils, and most recently in this ecumenical council, that there is a purgatory, and that the souls detained there are helped by the acts of intercession, suffrages, or uh, suffragia of the faithful, is in Latin, and especially by the acceptable sacrifice of the altar, so the Eucharist. Therefore, this holy council commands the bishops to strive diligently that the sound doctrine of purgatory, handed down by the holy fathers and the sacred councils, be believed by the faithful, and that it be adhered to, taught, and preached everywhere. But let the more difficult and subtle questions which do not make for edification, and for the most part are not conducive to an increase of piety, be excluded from popular sermons to uneducated people. So let's, for tonight, pretend like we're all educated people, and that all the questions that are here for our piety and our edification building up, because they will be subtle. Um, so, likewise, they should not permit opinions that are doubtful and tainted with air to be spread and exposed, as for those things that belong to the realm of curiosity or superstition or smack of dishonorable gain, they should forbid them as scandalous and injurious to the faith. So a lot of these books that we get now, like these kind of private revelation books about, you know, like how much time this person or that person or this sin or that sin will merit in purgatory, the Council of Trent is saying that is injurious to the faithful. So they should be forbidden as scandalous. That if it's not within public revelation or not reasoned from the deposit of faith, as we'll talk about later from St. Thomas Aquinas, we should avoid that. We should avoid that. Um, so to be careful with some of the information that we receive about purgatory. So let's continue with, though, going back to really the first time that purgatory is mentioned in the Ecumenical Council, which is very late, um, year 1245. Now we'll also know that just because something is mentioned late in the life of the church in an ecumenical council does not mean that it has not been thought of for a very long time. We'll see this whenever we go through uh, the Summa from St. Thomas, Interesting, I'll get to it. St. Thomas didn't write this part because he had already died, which, we'll talk about his death as well, it's very anticlimactic. But, um, that this is around the same time, the Council of Lyon. And he has a lot of very subtle and very well thought out uh, questions about purgatory. So, people might point and say, like, look, the church had been in purgatory in the year 1245. It's like, no, the church defended purgatory in 1245. Didn't have to be questioned until that time. Um, so, this is some of the proof text that we'll receive from the scriptures to uh, verify purgatory, um, as well as some of the tradition of the church. Finally, because the truth in the gospel affirms that if anyone speaks blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, he will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come, by which it is understood that some sins are loosed in the present age, and others in the future age. So if you recall the Gospel of Matthew, whenever he's talking about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, he says, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age, nor in the age to come. 
inferring that sins are forgiven in the age to come. Well, why won't blasphemy against the Holy Spirit be forgiven this age or in the age to come? Because the mission, the divine person of the Holy Spirit, is to forgive sins. And so blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is despairing of God's mercy. We know this is the mission of the Holy Spirit because the Gospel of John, whenever the apostles, whenever Jesus tells the apostles, who sins you forgive, he breathes on them the Holy Spirit first. And then he says, who sins you forgive are forgiven. Who sins you retain are retained. So that it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that they are able to administer mercy. Therefore, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, to reject mercy, is to reject salvation. And that sin cannot be forgiven in the future age or in this age. And then the apostle, the apostle being Paul, says in his first letter to Corinthians, the work of each one, whatever it may be, will be tested by fire. And he whose work is burned up will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but is only through fire. So he's saying, well, Paul is saying that all of our works will be tested by fire. The one whose work is burned up will suffer loss. So Paul goes on to talk about hay, stubble, and gold. That if our work is like hay or stubble, it will be burned up by this fire. But if it is like gold, it will simply be tried in the fire, that it will remain. And that we will be saved only as through fire. That if we have works that are like stubble and hay, then that will have to be burnt up, purged out, be punished for. But then through that fire, uh, what is gold, i.e. charity, the uh, love of God dwelling within our hearts, poured out through the Holy Spirit, will perdure into eternal life. And it is said, so the Council of Lyon is also talking to uh, the Greeks, those in the Eastern, now the Eastern Orthodox Church. There's been a split, there's been a schism in 1054. Because it is said, sorry, and one more thing for context of this council, they're trying to kind of come back in conversation with the Greeks, come back in conversation with those who've already been in schism from the church. So that's where we get this next slide. Because it said that the Greeks themselves truly and without doubt believe and affirm that the souls of those who die after receiving penance but without having performed it, or who die without mortal sin but with venial sin, are purified after death and can be assisted by the suffrages of the church. Because they say that a certain and proper name was not indicated then by the doctors for such a place of purgation. And because according to the tradition and authority of the Holy Fathers, we call it purgatory. We wish that henceforth will be called by the same among them. For indeed this temporary fire purifies since not however mortal or capital sins that were not previously omitted by penance but small and minor sins still weigh down after death even if during life they were forgiven. So at this point I want to kind of get into some of how do we bridge this gap so for the East, they describe the salt purgatory simply as a purification. For the West, us, there's more of an emphasis on satisfaction, making up for guilt that was accrued temporally, or let's say, you know, so for the sake of the example, if I break this window and Father Broussard forgives me for breaking the window, what needs to then happen is that the window still has a hole in it, so the window needs to be fixed. This hole, this window needing to be fixed, is what we call temporal, temporal satisfaction. It, that needs to be satisfied. Now, if a person has temporal satisfaction that needs to be done, this can be purified in purgatory. But, if there is an eternal punishment. That means that only the eternal word joined to human flesh can then remove that eternal punishment. Because there's an infinite gap now. 
Um, if there is an infinite offense committed against God, i.e. a mortal sin, a true rejection of the life of God within the soul, then only by the action of the eternal word can that infinite loss of grace be restored. So, some of the theological ponderings. How do we get this gap in between? Basically that, like, there is this fire that purifies us. And that the East says, well, there's no place called purgatory. This is where it gets interesting. For St. Thomas, he says, and actually, like I said, it's not actually St. Thomas. It is St. Thomas. He just, is a, he just doesn't write it in this book called the Summa. It is one of his friar friends named Fry Rinaldo da uh, Piperno, who takes Thomas's work from his commentary on the sentences of Peter Lombard back in the day. If you wanted to be anybody as a theologian, you had to write on this one guy, uh, this um, Peter Lombard, on his sentences. He had to write commentary. So uh, Aquinas is writing all this stuff. He can't write this in the Summa. Why? Because he died. How? He was traveling to the Fourth Lateran Council, and while he was traveling, he got struck in the head by a tree branch and died at the age of 49. So a very anticlimactic death for a very wonderful saint. Um, so, you know, some saints have much more glorious deaths. Some get, you know, or riding on the back of the horse and get hit in the head with a branch. Um, so this is this is how we get though this it's called the supplement in the soup, written by Fry Ronaldo um, Dopperman. What he says that's interesting is that purgatory, we think of heaven being one place, purgatory being this other place, and hell being this uh, third place. But that the fires of purgatory are actually the same fires of hell. The fires of purgatory are actually the same fires of hell. To where it's actually the quality of soul that is now reacting differently to those fires of hell. To where the person who is in mortal sin has his works that consist of only, for Paul's analogy, Apostle Paul, hay and stubble. And so that is burned up. While the soul that has works that consist of hay, stubble, and gold, the hay and stubble is burnt up. There is real pain. There is real satisfaction. There is real purification. But that the gold perdures. That grace of charity perdures. Yeah, this is not necessarily church teaching. This is St. Thomas uh, figuring this out, right? Working through this theological um, issue. So that if the same fire of hell, same fire purgatory, what is that fire? This is another further question. One of the things that's really fascinating is that... Um, Right now, I think, you know, we, we emphasize overly that maybe heaven is more of a state than it is a place. Thomas, and it seems like the scriptures would disagree, that heaven is a real place, and that hell is a real place. But that, and again, the scriptures corroborate that. And that the fires of hell are really real, like they're corporeal. They have real substance. That gets interesting. Why? Because souls don't have real matter. You know, whenever you die, your body is separated from your soul. So then how is it that a soul in hell or a soul in purgatory could feel the pain of those corporeal fires, those bodily fires, this is like, you know, and, and Thomas believes this, and he has very interesting arguments for this. 
One of them is that the fire, uh, he makes an analogy with the sacraments. So think about how now on earth, that through physical things that are received from your, in, by your body, there's something that happens actually to your soul. That whenever I receive the body of Christ in the sacrament, that is a physical thing that has an effect directly on my soul. You know, this also happens, for instance, with Jesus' healing of the paralytic. Jesus heals the paralytic. There's a real effect on his body, but through that healing of the paralytic, it says your sins are forgiven. There's something that happens to his soul. Baptism, of course, the pouring of water that happens to your body, but it has a real effect on your soul. These corporate, uh, corporeal fires, these real fires, that effect it has on the soul is the pain of divine justice. It is the pain of divine justice. For the souls that are in a state of mortal sin and have committed that infinite offense against God, that fire of divine justice, they can't breach it, right? They can't uh, make reparation, and no one can make reparation for that like infinite offense against God. No man can do that, right? Because no man can say, like, I mean, we know from the faith as well, from divine revelation, that the gates of heaven were not opened up until Christ himself came and passed through the gates of heaven as the eternal word joined to human nature. So only Christ is the one who can bridge that infinite gap. But for the soul who is in a state of charity, yet has venial sin, or has been forgiven all sins, but has not repaid the guilt, uh, or not repaid the, you know, the damage that they've done while on earth, that soul needs to experience the, the pain of divine justice that needs to be satisfied. And so, that has that effect on the soul. It's also interesting that the soul can be in a place. Another thing to ponder, right? So that we know the soul does not have a body. You know, the body is in a cemetery somewhere, but the soul, we say, can be in a place. And this is part of Thomas's um, theory of that he takes from Aristotle, and that colors just a lot of his anthropology and, and uh, seems to be taken up by a lot of Catholic thought, is this idea that the soul forms the body. So a lot of times we think about this backwards. We say that the body contains the soul, that your body contains your soul. But really for Thomas, what he says is that the soul contains the body. To where the soul, what the soul does is that it takes up matter, it forms it into a certain shape, it gives matter certain powers to where I, like, you know, my soul is different from your soul and your soul and your soul. And that the reason is that it takes that matter and it forms it in a certain way. So if that's the case, this is also, on a tangential note, how we explain how angels can be in one place or another. Or demons, for instance, can be like, can possess a person or obsess a person or uh, uh, infest an object, right? Because the demon does not have a body. You know, where the angel does not have a body, but the soul, you know, or that is spirit, that is immaterial, still can exist locally. It can exist in a certain space. And that way, and I know we're talking super theoretical here, but in that way, so a soul can be in hell or in purgatory or in heaven. So, um, 
The next question, though, is why is purgatory so painful? Is purgatory painful? Again, this I think is a question that we is useful for answering for our edification, so that we can desire not to go to purgatory if you know if need be. And Thomas says that purgatory is painful. Um, we experience the pain of divine justice, but also because the soul is not weighed down by the body while it experiences the pain of divine justice directly upon it, it also is not weighed down by the body for its longing towards God. But there is a, a distinct anguish that the soul feels for longing towards God and not yet having not yet having him, not yet having God, right? That in itself is a cause for pain. Now, some other notes about purgatory, and this will lead into our conversation about indulgences, um, is that the souls in purgatory cannot pray for themselves. They cannot pray for themselves, and this is indicated in um, give me one moment. This is indicated in the Bull Salvatore Nostair in support of the Church of St. Peter at Santes. So this is the one in 1476. It's still on. Oh, I did not copy it on your sheet. But I promise it exists. Uh, so it's online. But this is what uh, the bull says, Salvatore Noster. In order to procure the welfare of souls, especially during the time when they are more than ever in need of the suffrages of others, and when they are less than ever able to help themselves, so the souls are not able to help themselves. Why? Because they cannot merit anymore. There's nothing more for them to do, right? They cannot merit by doing good works. There's no more good works for them to do. They're removed from the body. And so for that reason, they cannot merit for themselves. They cannot make up for the, the punishment that they've caused on earth. They are no longer on earth. So then we need to be able to make up for um, the damage, you know, to make reparations. So to speak for that. Um, okay. Now there is a discussion, however, and this again we do not know um, whether the souls in purgatory can pray for us. So the reason why we're having this mission structured in these three ways: church triumphant, church suffering, church militant, is that we're all connected. You know, we are all part of the same body of Christ. Um, so, can they pray for us? There are a lot of different uh, thoughts on this. So, Thomas believes that those who are in purgatory, though they are above us on account of their impeccability, it means that they have less sin. Why? Because they're being Yet they are below us because of the pains in which they suffer. And in this respect, they are not in a condition to pray. And rather, in a condition that requires us to pray for them. So basically, Thomas is saying that, yeah, sure, though they are closer to God in some sense, the pain that they experience is so great that they're not able to pray. That's Thomas's thought. But then, other theologians and doctors of the church have disagreed with this. So like St. Robert Bellarmine, sees the souls in purgatory as being more capable, uh, more than capable of praying for us, because they do have a greater love for God than we possibly can on this earth, given their closer proximity to heaven, um, and because we know that they will um, enter heaven eventually. Uh, and then St. Alphonsus Liguori has a little bit of a more middle ground here that so the reason why the saints can pray for us and we know like we can pray uh, ask for a particular saints prayers and they will hear those prayers and know them is because the saints have the beatific vision of God 
they behold God immediately. And in having the immediate vision of God, see all things in God. So that they just know what's happening, right? Uh, presently, uh, by beholding God. So because they behold God, they know our petitions. The souls of purgatory do not yet have that. Souls of purgatory don't yet have that. And for that reason, though they could pray for us, there's not reason to think that they would know who to pray for. You know, so imagine that you're just like praying for someone. You know, you're just offering prayers. Lord, for whoever's, I pray for whoever needs this. It's probably analogous to what, according to Alphonsus Liguori, a soul in purgatory would be doing. You know, just offering prayers for the church and God allotting those prayers, you know, uh, for as he sees fit. So that is a possibility as well. But all this, we do not know, but we do know that the souls in purgatory are in need of us to pray for them. Before going on to how we do that, I want to take a sidestep onto Martin Luther and why the Council of Trent, which is in response to Luther and other reformers, um, is so strong on purgatory, but also uh, why. I can't believe I didn't. No, I did. I did. Uh, at the bottom of the first page. Um, the heirs of Martin Luther. Um, yeah, so why they're responding so strongly about purgatory is because, as we know, many of Martin Luther's 95 theses were gripes against indulgences. And so he, if you're going to talk about indulgences and how they're going, probably also have to talk about purgatory. So we're going to kind of work our way backwards to see why is it that Martin Luther will not believe in purgatory. So first, what are some of the errors that the church condemned of Martin Luther? Purgatory cannot be proved from any sacred scripture that is in the canon. Again, these are all errors. The souls in purgatory are not sure of their salvation, at least not at all, nor is it proved by any arguments or by the scriptures that they are beyond the state of merity, or of an increase in charity. The souls of purgatory sin without intermission as long as they seek rest and poor punishments. The soul free from purgatory by the suffrages of the living are less happy than if they had been made, than if they had made satisfaction by themselves. All of each of the above mentioned articles or errors is set before you. We condemn, disapprove, and entirely reject as respectfully heretical, or scandalous, or false, or offensive to pious ears, or seductive of simple minds in opposition to Catholic truth. Okay. So those are all things that Martin Luther believed. Um, so why did he come to this conclusion? He didn't always have this belief. Um, he progressively gets to this point of um, Eventually, not believing in purgatory. Why? Because um, every theologian has, whether they know it or not, something called uh, a theologumina or a theological axiom. So, like for Thomas Aquinas, one of his theological axioms is uh, exitus reditus. All things exit from God and all things return to God. So that he sees everything under this light. All things exit from God, all things return to God. So that creation comes from God, returns to God and like, you know, the world to come. Man, created by God, returns to God in salvation, right? Now, what so you, know, you have uh, the theology of grace, for instance, with St. Augustine. So what is Martin Luther's theological axiom? by which he sees the whole gospel. The answer to that is uh, sola gratia, or only grace alone, right? Grace alone is how uh, he sees the whole gospel. And because 
Only grace alone saves us that we cannot even make up for temporal punishment, that I can't even really rightfully repair that window. Uh, and the reason for this to backtrack is that Martin Luther has a very low anthropology. He, one of the other errors that he has is something we've had. If man, man cannot will anything without sinning. Man cannot will anything without sin. So that even if I try to fix this window, I'm going I'm to screw it up. You know, I'm going to do it with bad intention, whatever, right? That I cannot make up for even my temporal punishment. If I can't make up for my temporal punishment, then there's no point of purgatory. And there's no point of someone else making up for my temporal punishment by their prayers, alms, and by their works that could include indulgences. So, um, that is why Martin Luther does not see the existence of purgatory. It's not just because, you know, he took out second Maccabees, you know. It's because of this whole theology of grace that all punishment needs to be redeemed by Christ because man is totally corrupt and can do nothing for himself. While we recognize that man can fix temporal punishment, but that it is to God to fix that eternal punishment. He alone uniquely can do that. So, how do we remove the temporal punishment? We do so by prayer, by alms, but also by this work of indulgences. And the church says some pretty interesting stuff about indulgences that might make us squirm a little bit. So, similarly with purgatory, indulgences aren't really talked about um, in ecumenical councils for a long time. In fact, the first time that indulgences are brought up in an ecumenical council is in the year 1215. And the topic is on the abuse of indulgences, which means you can't abuse something that does not already exist, right? It's not like in 1215 the church said, hey, we're coming out with this new thing. you got to check it out. It's a package deal. It's called an indulgence, right? Now, the first time that the church mentions an indulgence ecumenically is that, hey, indulgences are being abused, you know, and we have to remedy this. So... Um, this is what the Fourth Lateran Council says. Because the keys of the church are brought into contempt and satisfaction through penance, it loses force through indiscriminate and excessive indulgences. Certain prelates of churches do not fear grant. We therefore decree that when a basilica is dedicated, the indulgence shall not be for more than one year. For the anniversary of the dedication, the remission of penances imposes not to exceed 40 days. We order that the letters of indulgence, which are granted for various reasons at different times, are a fixed this number of days, since Roman Pontiff himself possesses the plenitude of power, is accustomed to observe this moderation in such things. Okay. Um, we then, I would like to just get to the church's explanation, though, of indulgences. Uh, it does it most thoroughly from a papal standpoint in this bull. So before, like encyclicals haven't always really been like around, you know, papal encyclicals. Um, encyclical just being a letter. Um, you know, if a papal encyclical is a Facebook post, then a papal bull is like a tweet, you know, like it's very short, you know, 140 characters or less is what the popes were limited to, you know, in their papal bulls. But um, that is, of course, a joke. Um, so, yeah, but bulls were much more short and direct. So, this is the papal bull explaining uh, indulgences as the treasury of the merits of Christ dispensed through the church. So, before we begin, just so that we're all clear confession by the act of the eternal word through his minister, the priest, removes eternal punishment by absolving all sin, including mortal sin. Indulgences do not have that effect, but can affect the removal of 
temporal punishment. Can't affect the removal of temporal punishment. And that Christ not only removes eternal punishment, but also removes temporal punishment. We see this like with the good thief, for instance. You know, that Christ says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That his sacrifice can affect even temporal punishment. That is how gratuitous his sacrifice is. And that in giving the keys to Peter, uh, he gives the keys not only to like church doctrine, but also to his own merits, to Jesus' own merits. That's how much power he gives to whenever he gives Peter the keys to the kingdom. So this is the church's full kind of but concise explanation. The only begotten Son of God, when God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, 1 Corinthians 1.30, entered once for all into the holy place, not taking the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For, I was voiced to texting this when I was writing this down, um, quote, you were ransomed, <laughs> whole things such as silver or gold, both precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You were ransomed wholly, like that by the precious blood of Christ, without blemish or spot. Emulated on the altar of the cross, though he was innocent, he should not be only a drop shed a drop of his blood, which would supply for the redemption of the whole human race because of the union with the word. Like a but he drops like a stream of blood, so that from the sole of the foot even to the head, there was no soundness in Isaiah 1:6. What a great treasure then has the good father acquired for the church. Militant of the merciful shedding of blood is not to be empty, meaningless, and superfluous. He wanted to lay it up for his children, so that there might be an unfailing treasure for men. Those who get it obtain friendship with God. Wisdom 714. So this is one of the clearest allusions, right, from the Book of Wisdom. That Christ has laid up a treasure that is unfailing for men, the treasure of his merits his passion, what he has suffered for us. Those who receive from this treasure become friends of God. Become friends of God. This treasury, headed to the care of St. Peter, holds the keys of heaven and to his successors, his own vicars, not vicars, on earth, who are to distribute it to the faithful for their own salvation. And they are to apply these treasures with compassion for pious and good reasons, in order that it may benefit those who are truly contrived, I don't know what I was saying, um, don't listen to that, uh, for the complete remission of the uh, temple due, punishment due to sin. Yeah, don't hand out these uh, things. Uh, at times, for the partial remission, either by general or particular disposition, as before God they judge more expedient. To the abundance of this treasury, the merits of the Blessed Mother of God and all of the elects, and the first, just persons, the last, also contribute. So saying that it's not only Christ who contributes to this treasury of merits, but the saints do, Mary does, and also the saints of the jail. So like we do. So, for instance, you imagine this treasury, you're like a bank, you know, like by our merits, we put into this bank, and from this bank, I can give uh, to other souls in need, right? That say like, hey, you know, for the sake of example, the window is broken, I can't fix the window, but I know a guy who can fix it, you know? And no guy who will come and fix it, he'll fix it for me for free, because he's my friend. Similarly, the soul of purgatory, like, hey, you know, the window's broke, right? Or, you know, I, I was, um, I was an addict and uh, hurt a lot of people in my life. I repented of my sin, but a lot of damage has been done. But I know someone who loves me enough to pray for me 
to make reparation for all the damage that I've done. Right? That is what's happening with prayers, alms, and also indulgences. And as we know, it is uh, at all to be feared that it could be exhausted or diminished, first on account of the infinite merits of Christ. So basically saying the bank is not going to run out because of the infinite merits of Christ. As already mentioned and further, because the more men draw are drawn to righteousness by having this treasury applied to them, so much the more does the store of those merits increase. So what it's saying is actually by getting the indulgence, I'm not simply drawing from the bank. I'm not simply drawing from the treasury. But I'm actually putting back in. Why? Because the indulgence is a good work. You know, like, and you have the list of indulgences, and we can kind of skim through them. But in those lists of indulgences, you'll see, like, oh, these, most of them are just normal good things. You know? Like, you get, like, a partial indulgence for praying a rosary in a church. You know? Like, you probably already, you already do that, right? Um, so, yeah, so we know what the church says. The church, and why I said we're kind of squeamed by it uh, a little bit, is that the church is also clear that, um, let's see if I have it on here. The church is also clear that we are uh, in the Council of Trent, which I did not put on here, but that to believe in indulgences is not an option. Like, it's, it's not like believing in Our Lady of Fatima or something like that, or Our Lady of Lourdes, right? None of us are, are bound to believe in that as Catholics. But we are bound to believe in punishment. So, this part of the church's in, in uh, it's part of the church's infallible teaching, so that no Catholic is at liberty to disbelieve in indulgences. So then how do we kind of like work through and explain them? Okay, so first, just to reiterate the reality of temporal punishment, that temporal punishment can exist while they're being forgiveness. So you think of, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, whenever David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So we know what David did, right? He slept with Bathsheba, um, and then to cover it up, he sent Bathsheba's husband out to the front of the battle lines so that he was killed. And then he thinks that he pulls it off, with by knowing, Nathan the prophet calls him out. He recognizes he's sinned against the Lord. This is what Nathan answers. The Lord on his part has forgiven your sin. David is forgiven. You shall not die. But, since you have utterly spurned the Lord by his deed, the child born to you must surely die. So God forgave David, but David still had to suffer the loss of his son, as well as other temporal punishments. So that temporal punishments do come with sin, even though we are still forgiven. Temporal punishment is still there. But then, we also have to acknowledge that we truly, the scriptures, can remit punishment for others. So, when God blesses one person as a reward to someone else, sometimes specific blessing he gives is a reduction of the temporal penalty, penalties to which the first person is subject. What do I mean? For example, God promised Abraham that if he could find a certain number of righteous men in Sodom, he was willing to defer the city's temporal destruction for the sake of the righteousness. So, Abraham, you go do this good thing. You go find me enough good men in Sodom. And I promise you that I will not destroy Sodom. That this temporal punishment will be remitted, even though they are deserving of the temporal punishment. So we see now how by my prayers, alms, and words of indulgence that I can do, that I can remit temporal punishment for someone else. Um, and, you know, the possibility of humans to remove temporal punishment, we acknowledge, again, Christ is the only one who can remove the eternal punishment.
punishment is the eternal war joined to human nature, while we temporal beings can certainly reverse temporal damage. Um, so, I just want to go through then, kind of, uh, oh, before this, I would like to talk about the use of indulgences for a moment. Uh, I don't know why I gave you all the magisterial documents that I wasn't going to talk about. Um, but the last one on your page is, and we see the church working here, is uh, that old Savage Bordeaux stare in which saying, hey, the church is going to establish this indulgence using its power from the keys given to Peter to say, if you support uh, this church of St. Peter on Santes in 1476, then um, you can be granted a plenary indulgence. Now, the very next year, this is what I left out. The very next year, like 13 months later, the Pope writes this letter saying, hey, this has been abused by some preachers. And what the Pope is saying is that what it's done is that it's made people, basically made people lazy. Um, it's made people say, okay, well, I'm just going to get this indulgence and do nothing more. What really then had to happen uh, was what needed to be, what the Pope emphasized was that the indulgence does not work like magic, but rather the indulgence is obtained through the same means that prayer and alms and good works affect, and that is by suffrage. That by a certain suffrage does the person uh, actually affect the indulgence. So it's not like the indulgence is a sacrament or something like that. Like, the indulgence depends very much on the disposition of the one performing the indulgence. Um, whereas the sacrament works by the authority of Christ, uh, and only if the minister intends what the church intends. So, um, the church clarifies there that uh, indulgences, you know, are tied to our disposition, not work like magic. So, in conclusion, um, just want to go through some of the ordinariness of some of these indulgences and the requirements for them. So indulgences uh, can be applied to myself, my own remission of punishment, but also for remission of punishment for someone else. So we don't know how much like punishment is or isn't remitted, you know, uh, as far as partial indulgences. Um, but um, the apostolic penitentiary is saying uh, penitentiary, not penitentiary, not the apostolic prison. Uh, the apostolic penitentiary is saying that there must be three prerequisites, sacramental confession. Um, the manual of indulgence clarifies that this can be like within about 20 days. Uh, communion. I think this is also within like an eight-day period. And prayer for the intention of the Holy Father. All to be performed within days of each other, if not at the same time. Um, okay, so these are some of ways of uh, obtaining partial indulgence. So direct beg your Lord for every Roman ritual for, I guess, just for the indulgence. Acts of theological virtues and contrition. So just like making an act of faith, hope, and love, a partial indulgence is granted to those who devoutly recite according to any legitimate formula an act of faith, hope, and charity and contrition. So just by saying an act of contrition, that indulgence is given. Um, like the, the hymn of Lord de Devote, um, to your blessed Joseph prayer, angel of God prayer, angel of the Lord prayer, the anima Christi prayer. Um, then you have like some of these plenary indulgences as far as visiting particular churches in Rome. Um, 
praying the office of the dead. So like if you pray, for instance, you pray in the bravery today on the soul's day, um, that is part of the office of the dead. And any act of spiritual communion according to any pious formula, so like indulgences would have been given out during COVID time, you're making spiritual communions and everything, indulgences were given there. Um, visiting a cemetery, um, yeah, a partial indulgence is also granted those who take part in teaching or learning Christian doctrine. So you're welcome for this partial indulgence, you know. Um, so other acts, uh, praying the Roman breviary, a partial indulgence is given, making a three-day retreat with spiritual exercises. Um, yeah, so there's, anyway, to go on and on, citing the Memorare or Psalm 50, the Miserere, the Magnificat, on and on and on. Basically, what the church is saying here is that by doing good works, you are making reparation. And what is being said in like these different 70 options on this menu, you know, and not limited to this, is that the church is showing us what good works are. By giving us indulgences, the church is rubber standing saying, hey, this is a good thing to do. And if you do it detached from sin and uh, doing all of and receiving sacramental confession, communion, and praying for the Holy Father, it can be redemptive for your soul or for the souls of others. So, um, as a wrap up, I hope my goal for tonight was to make purgatory and to make indulgences a little bit more sensible, a little bit more understandable, and kind of seen within the collective of Christian doctrine, within the whole picture of the Christian faith. Um, so, with that, we'll close the prayer and then I'll talk about it some more. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to her protection, implored your help, or sought her intercession, was left in aid. Inspired by this confidence, I fly into the O Virgin and Virgin's my mother. To thee do I come before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. A mother of the word incarnate, despise the non-petitions, but in your mercy, hear and answer them. Amen. Our Lady of Wisdom. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So tomorrow, um, the topic will be on church militant. Uh, it'll be very different. Um, talking about like why Jesus institutes the church, uh, the mission of the church, the identity of the church, and what joins the church mystically to one another. How is it that we offer up sufferings, right, um, for one another, how one's, you know, joys and merits are all tied as being part of the church as the body of Christ. Uh, that is going to be roughly the sketch of tomorrow's talk at the same time at 7 p.m. So, thanks and God bless.